All right, turn, uh, take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Just going to be reading a short passage this evening, uh, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, just a little bit of background, uh, a little bit of recap. Last time, like I said, we did look at the first of the letters to the seven churches. Uh, the first one being to Ephesus that we saw in the first seven verses of Revelation 2. And in that letter, we saw that Ephesus was a champion of orthodoxy. They were a church that was really solid on the truth. They knew the truth. They defended the truth. And they did not allow any false teachers in their midst. So they didn't tolerate false teaching. They didn't tolerate false apostles. They did not tolerate wickedness. They were a vigilant and discerning church. And that, like we said two weeks ago, would that all churches were vigilant and discerning. Would that all churches were, were really uh, fired up about protecting the truth and defending the truth and standing for the truth. But we also noticed that that church had a fatal flaw. And that fatal flaw was that they had left their first love, not lost their first love, like the old Righteous Brothers song, you lost that loving thing. No, they left their first love. That was a willful decision on their part to, in a sense, turn away from Jesus. So they were the loveless church. So Jesus then commands that church uh, to do three things. He commands them to remember your first love to do the first works, and to repent of your sin. The warning to that church was if they did not do these things, the one who stands and walks amongst the lampstands, and that's the image of Christ that we get in the letter to Ephesus, was he is the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and who walks amongst the seven lampstands. So that image brings to mind that he is the, the sovereign of the church, he is the head of the church, he is the one who manages and maintains and cares for the church. And he says, if you do not repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You're going to be a, if you're going to be a loveless church, you're not going to be a church anymore. Your lampstand will be taken away from you. But he tells them the one who overcomes, that person will be granted the right to eat from the tree of life. That tree, which we see at the beginning of the Bible, we see also at the end of the Bible. And Jesus, again, the head of the church, will give to the one who overcomes. He will give him the privilege and the right to have access to that tree of life, that tree that grants eternal life. Now, as we come here to the letter, the second letter, the letter to the church in Smyrna, uh, we see that normal pattern that we said there's like a pattern to these letters. It was almost like an ancient form letter in a sense with blanks in that you can kind of fill in the blanks to the to the church of blank, and this is what, you know, all these things. There's a slight deviation here. Smyrna is one of the churches, 
that does not receive any rebuke from the Lord. Uh, most of the churches get some kind of rebuke or warning. They says, this is what you're doing good, but here's what you're doing bad. You need to stop it. Smyrna is not one of those churches. Instead of rebuke, instead of warning, they get an encouraging word from the Lord, as we'll see in a moment. Now, just a little bit of background for the church of Smyrna. We don't know a whole lot about this church. In fact, the only time we see a mention of a church in Smyrna is right here in the book of Revelation. It's the only time you see it in the entire Bible. Now, the city of Smyrna, again, if you can kind of picture, maybe one of these days I'll actually think about printing out a map of Asia Minor that has where the churches are located. But uh, if, even if you have a, you know, a Bible with maps in the back, you could probably find it. Anyway, these, if you can locate Ephesus in where Asia Minor is, these seven churches form a little semicircular Route. So they start in Ephesus and then they kind of go clockwise, you know, north and then back down south. So Smyrna is the next city in that path. And it's about 40 miles north of Ephesus. It's on the coast. And uh, more than likely, the city was evangelized probably by Christians from Ephesus. Ephesus being the main focal point of the Christian movement in Asia there. More than likely, missionaries from that city were sent out and had gone to Smyrna and started a church there. Now, like Ephesus, Smyrna was also a very wealthy city. Being a port city, they would have had a lot of business going there. And in a sense, you can almost think, see that it was sort of like a rivalry between the two cities. The modern-day Turkish city of Izmir now sits on the site where Smyrna once was. Another thing about Smyrna that we could tell from just historical records, not the Bible, but they more than likely had a sizable Jewish population. And you, you kind of get this impression when you read this letter because it says that the church there was being persecuted by those who call themselves Jews but were really a synagogue of Satan. So they probably had a, a sizable uh, Jewish population there. And these Jews would have probably been Jews that were scattered during the first uh, dispersion or the diaspora when, when the Romans came in initially. Jews were scattered and, of course, if we believe, as we do, that uh, Revelation has a late writing, somewhere around 95 A.D., that in 70 A.D., when Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed, Jews would have been scattered, and they probably would have found themselves all throughout the Roman Empire. Now, interestingly enough, uh, the Roman laws against Christianity were strictly enforced in Smyrna. Uh, so it is believed that Smyrna may have been sort of like the focal point of any Christian persecution in Asia. Um, in fact, during the, the reign of Domitian, who was emperor during the time of the writing of Revelation, there was a persecution of the church, and it did, centrally, it did sort of focus in the Asia Minor area. Now, I don't know how well... Uh, you guys are versed on some of the ancient fathers of the church, but there was a, an ancient church father named Polycarp, which kind of sounds like a fish, right? You've got carp and then you've got polycarps, <laughs> but no, it was the name of a person. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, okay? So he was a, a church leader in this city at one point. He was born in the year 69, so by the time of 95 AD, when this was written, he would have been in his probably late 20s, early 30s. And it is said by church history that, that Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. So he would be 
sort of like that next generation of Christians after the apostles. So you have Jesus, the 12 apostles, then the apostles started churches. Polycarp would have been one of the first sort of generation after the apostles because he was a close associate of the apostle John. And Polycarp was martyred for his faith in 155 AD. So he would have been 31, 86 years old, 86 years old, 87 years old when he was martyred. So he was martyred as an old man. And in fact, the story goes that they tried to get him to recant. They're like, I guess the Roman officials there were like, we really don't want to burn an old man at the stake. Will you please just recant your faith? It's like you're old. What, what, what good is it? And he says, I cannot recant my faith. I cannot deny the Savior that I have served 87 years of my life. The Lord who has, who has purchased me for 87 years of my life, I cannot recant. So they burned him at the stake and he was martyred in Smyrna. So it is to this church that John will address his second letter here that we see in verses 8 through 11. So as we come to this passage, we see the typical command of Jesus to John to write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. So again, you know, these letters, you know, again, if you have like, like I do here, a red letter Bible, uh, all of chapter two, all of chapter three are all in red, which means this is John, even though John writes the entire book, this is John being the secretary. (laughs) Okay. He is being the, the, he is taking dictation from Jesus Christ to write these letters down. And in verse eight, we say to the angel of church in Smyrna, write these things says the first and the last who was dead and who came to life. Now, each of these letters, as we talked about before, begins with a description of Jesus. And these descriptions of Jesus are taken from images that we see in chapter 1. And here, the image is Jesus is described as the first and the last who was dead and came to life. So you can, you can, if you want to turn back, you can. We're not going to read these, but in Revelation 1... Verse 8, verse 11, and verses 7 through 18, we see these descriptions of Jesus as the first and the last, the firstborn from the dead, the one who was dead and came to life. And if you remember from that lesson, this idea of Jesus being described as the first and the last talks about Jesus not only as uh, his eternality, his timelessness, the, the, that aspect of deity that is eternal, so Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. But it also speaks of Jesus as being the source of all things. He is the first. All things come from him. And he is the last. All things end in him. So he is the source of all things, and he is the goal of all things. The Bible speaks about all things being created by Jesus, and the Bible also speaks of Jesus being the goal of all creation. So now what Jesus here as the great high priest who walks amongst the seven lampstands, what he wants this church to know, the church in Smyrna, is that the one who writes to you is the one who is the eternal one. It is the one who created all things and is the one to whom all things culminate, the one in whom all things find their purpose and their goal. And he also writes to them as the one who was dead and is now alive. Jesus, Revelation 1.5 says he is the firstborn of the dead or from the dead. 
He is the first one to taste resurrection life. He's the first one to taste glorified life. Now, again, we have to understand, we said this before, but firstborn from the dead doesn't mean he was the first one raised from the dead. The Bible talks about other people who were raised from the dead. Uh, Elisha raises someone from the dead. Jesus had raised a couple of people from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead. But these people were not resurrected. Okay, These people were sort of, in a sense, resuscitated. They were brought back to natural life. Jesus' resurrection, he's tasting now, he is the first one to taste the glorified life, the ultimate life, the, the, the spiritual life that we will all one day take when Jesus Christ returns. And he is the one who defeated death by his own resurrection. By his own resurrection, re- resurrection from the dead, he is the one who defeats death. He is the one who makes death powerless. He is the one who, uh, Paul will say in Corinthians, death has lost its sting because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Now, as we'll see in a moment here, Smyrna is the persecuted church. So whereas Ephesus was the loveless church, Smyrna is the persecuted church. And what can be more comforting to a church undergoing persecution, facing severe persecution for their faith, for their testimony, for their witness to the Lord, than to know that Jesus is the one who is the first and the last, the one in whom all things find their meaning and the one to whom all things will end up, and also the one who was dead and is now alive. That this one has encouraging words for this church that is undergoing persecution. Now, even though persecution is to be expected in the church, this may still somewhat shock us, even now in the 21st century. I mean, we're, we hear about the church being persecuted. We read about it in missionary reports. We may even see it on the news. But until it happens to you, until it happens to us, okay, it doesn't seem completely real, at least not to me. You know, I hear about it all the time, and I can sort of understand, and, you know, when they, I can read the, the reports and I can understand what's going on. But until you really face persecution, it always still seems as something that's happening to somebody else, okay? And that's just something I think is kind of general with human beings you know you can understand you can sympathize maybe even empathize with someone's pain but until you go through that pain yourself you don't really kind of know it to the you know the way the person going through it knows it okay does that kind of make sense okay so until you go through persecution i mean serious persecution it's hard to kind of grasp what's going on in this church Now, we've said it before during our sermon series through the Gospel of John, but that word we use oftentimes, a person who dies for the faith, is called a martyr. And that word comes out of the Greek. The the Greek word just means a testimony, a witness, or in the verb form is one who bears witness. And it comes to be associated with someone who dies for their faith because what happens is, A Christian who bears witness, a Christian who testifies about the truth of Jesus Christ, often faced death, which is why now martyr is someone who dies for the faith, not just someone who bears witness to the faith. So John is told to write to this church. And in verse 9, we see how Jesus commends the church, where he says, I know your works. Your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. 
And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So as Jesus says to all the seven churches, he says to the church in Smyrna here, he says, I know your works. Again, Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the one who walks amongst the lampstands. Jesus knows what's going on in his church. He is the high priest. That imagery of, the, the, of Jesus among the lampstands is the image of a priest um, ministering in the temple. The priest ministering in the holy place where the lampstand actually was. And he, so he knows what's going on in this church. He is the one who sees all, so he knows the works of his church. And in particular for Smyrna, he knows three things. He knows their tribulation, he knows their poverty, and he knows the blasphemy of their persecutors. So let's first look at tribulation. And this word tribulation uh, literally means sort of a pressing together. Sort of like, you know, think of, uh, if anybody remembers that old uh, I Love Lucy episode where she's making the wine and she's stomping around in the, in the wine vat. This idea of tribulation, this pressing together is taken from sort of a, a winemaking uh, motif where you're pressing the grapes to squeeze the grapes to get the juice out of them. So it, it metaphorically means, or figuratively means, oppression, affliction, the pressure that you're facing, uh, for your witness and testimony to Christ or your tribulation. Now, even though Smyrna is known as the persecuted church, it doesn't mean that they were the only persecuted church. Okay, again, remember that these uh, letters to these seven churches, the, the, the number seven in Revelation, really in the Bible means uh, a, a fullness, a perfection. So these churches are representative of all churches throughout the entire church age. So every church is, in a sense, like Smyrna. It's like Ephesus. It's like the others. Okay, Some are more Smyrna than others. Some are less Smyrna than others. Some may not be Smyrna at all. But here, this is, uh, you know, just because it's written to this one particular church doesn't mean that this was the only church facing persecution. In fact, to be sure, at various points in history, the church was free of persecution. There, there are moments where the church isn't persecuted at all, or very little. But it doesn't mean that the church as a whole isn't being persecuted. I mean, you could take, for example, here, you know, again, 21st century United States, we're not really persecuted for our faith. We're maybe marginalized, we're maybe ridiculed. Maybe there'll come a point in time in the future if things keep going the way they seem to be going, maybe we will be persecuted. Maybe we will get prosecuted for hate crimes by, you know, if we say certain things, if we say certain truths that are in the Bible. But it's not happening right now. Okay? But even though it's not happening to us, we know that there's churches across the globe that are facing persecution, churches in China, churches in any Middle Eastern country. So things like that, uh, these church, while we're not facing persecution, they are. So it probably goes without saying that, but persecution is something that is just to be expected as a Christian. Okay, Persecution is just something to be expected as a Christian. In fact, that's what Jesus told his disciples to expect. In the upper room, when he's talking to the, well, I guess at this point it would have been the 11, because Judas would have left. But when he's talking to the 11, and he's telling them that I, I have to go, 
my time is here. And they're like, what do you, what's going on, Jesus? What do you mean? And then he tells them, he's like, you're going to be in the world and the world's going to hate you. But just know that it hates you because it hated me first. And at the end of John chapter 16, he says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So the idea here is you're going to face persecution, but you take your hope in the fact that Jesus Christ, who also was persecuted, who was slain for, for his testimony, slain for being the very son of God, he has overcome the world. In fact, later in Revelation, John is given a vision of a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, and they were clothed with white robes and palms in their hand. This is coming out of Revelation 7. And one of the 24 elders who are around the throne of Christ, that we'll, we'll see this in Revelation 4, the, the, the occupants or the people who are present in the, in the heavenly throne room. But one of these 24 elders asked John, he says, who are these people? Who are... Do you know who this this great multitude of people are? And John says, I have no clue. He says, I I don't know. He says, maybe you know. Why don't you tell me? So the elder replies, he says, in Revelation 7 and verse 14, he says, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So John gets this vision of a great multitude of people who are now in the heavenly throne room. And these are people who have gone through tribulation. Christians will go through tribulation. There are so many passages that speak of the church as a persecuted group and how persecution is to be the norm for the church. Now again, this might not be normal for us, like I keep saying this, here in 21st century America. We still enjoy a great deal of religious liberty, but know this, What we're experiencing is very unusual in the history of the church overall. This is a very unusual set of circumstances for the church in the world overall. So Jesus knows their tribulation. But secondly, he also knows their poverty. Their poverty. And that word poverty, it's not like, you know, hey, I'm poor. Can you lend me five bucks? I can get us... No, this is like we're talking destitute poverty. We're talking extreme destitution. We're talking like I have no idea where I'm going to get my next meal kind of poverty. That's what this word here means in the, in the original. It is a person who has been reduced to begging. So this is not like the poor in our country who are still rich by the world standards, right? Even the poor people in the United States are rich when you compare them to poor people in Africa, poor people in India. I mean, my wife worked in India for two and a half years. You know, particularly in Calcutta, they were dirt poor. It's like our poor, you know, they would love to be our poor, I think. (laughs) You know, that's the idea. So it's not like our poor here. We're talking worse than third world poor. And Jesus, he says here, he knows their poverty. But then he tells them, but you are rich. I know your poverty, but you are rich. This is a glorious gospel truth here. That physically poor means spiritually rich. 
That's what Jesus is getting at here. The church in Smyrna was physically poor, but their worldly poverty translated into a wealth of spiritual blessings. We see this all throughout Scripture. Luke chapter 6 and verse 20, where Jesus comes up. This is his uh, version of the Sermon on the Mount in in Luke's Gospel. And he says, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed be you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, where Paul writes and he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you can be, uh, by, through his poverty, might become rich. And then in James chapter 2 and verse 5, James writes, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? So this is a a theme running throughout uh, the scriptures, which is that if you are physically poor, you are spiritually rich. In fact, Jesus tells us to not lay up treasures on earth where rust will destroy and the moth will eat and thieves will break in and steal, but lay up treasures in heaven where it will not rust, where the moths will not break in and eat and where thieves cannot break in and steal. In fact, when he talks to the rich young ruler, after he talks to the rich young ruler who goes away sad because Jesus tells him, he says, if you want to see the kingdom of God, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the guy's like, okay, I'm going to go find another guru to, to speak to because I, I don't want to, I'm, I'm, you know, and it says he went away because he was very, very rich. And then his disciples say, well, then who can enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says to them, well, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, it's not to say that there is some special virtue in being rich. It doesn't mean that we have to all now, let's all just sell everything that we have. Let's be dirt poor. Let's start begging for our meals because then we'll be spiritually rich. That's not what we're talking about here. It's a priority thing. It's, it is a where is your heart kind of thing. Is it with Jesus and the things of the kingdom? Then be prepared for a life of persecution and even maybe poverty. But if it's with the world and the things of the world, then the saying of Jesus will come true where he says, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his soul? Now to consider a flip side to this, um, if you're still in Revelation 2, just flip over to Revelation 3 in verse 17. The flip side to the church of Smyrna is the church in Laodicea, which we'll get to, Lord willing, when we get to it. But when we get to the church in Laodicea, which is the last of the seven churches, but in verse 17 of chapter 3, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So here's the opposite. Here's a church that thought that they had it all. They thought that they were very rich. They thought they were very wealthy. They thought they had it all. They didn't need anything. They didn't need to ask for anything. And Jesus tells them, it's like, you don't realize you're naked, wretched, poor, miserable, and, and, and you know, whatever else he says there. All these things. That's what you are. You're blind, naked, miserable, wretched, and poor. Because you have 
prioritize the wrong things. You've prioritized worldly treasure. You have prioritized the earthly treasures. So Jesus knows their tribulation. He knows their poverty, but tells them that they are rich. And thirdly, he knows the blasphemy of their persecutors. And that word blasphemy speaks of the idea of slander, detraction, injurious speech. It's commonly understood to refer to, you know, you blaspheme against God, but it's really, it can be applied to, um, you know, slanderous talk to another human being. But here we see that the church in Smyrna was being afflicted, blasphemed by those who say they are Jews but are not, but are really a synagogue of Satan. So the fact that the Jews persecuted Christians here is not a mystery. Okay, this, we see this in the book of Acts, if you're familiar how the book of Acts works. So in the book of Acts, you've got, you know, the, you had the ascension. It starts off with the ascension of Jesus Christ. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down and baptizes the, the church with the, the Spirit. And then they all speak in tongues. And 3,000 people are converted on the spot that day when they hear uh, Peter preach. And then the next day or a few days later, Peter goes, Peter and John go out. Uh, this is Acts chapter 3. They go out to the temple and they're preaching there. And, and they see a lame man that's, you know, who was lame for a number of years and who was begging, probably one of these poor people. He was begging and he says, do you have any money? And Peter says, well, I don't have any silver or gold. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks. And, you know, more people are converted. And now the Jews see what's going on. It's like, what's this ruckus going on outside our temple? So they go and they have Peter and John arrested. They're hauled in. They're, they're thrown into the jail. And then the next day they're brought before the Sanhedrin. And then the Jewish leaders tell them, do not preach anymore in the name of Christ. And, of course, they say, we cannot not preach <laughs> you know, about the name of Jesus Christ. So they're flogged and they're let go. And, and then they say they were, they counted it a blessing and, and they counted themselves unworthy to be treated so badly for the name of Christ. So the Jews persecuted the Christians. The Jewish leaders saw Jesus as a false Messiah, as a criminal. The Jews saw the Christians as a sort of an offshoot, a corruption of their faith. So they persecuted Christ. They persecuted his followers. Now here Jesus says that the church is being blasphemed by those who say they are Jews but are not. Now if you've been here through our Sunday school series, as we've been going through Romans, if you remember when we went through Romans 2, Paul tells uh, those people there that being Jewish is more than just being circumcised. It's more than just having the law of God in your hands. Being Jewish or being a true Jew, as Paul will say at the end of chapter 2, he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. So in other words, a true Jew is not just one who's got all the outward markings of being a Jew. A Jew is a matter of the heart. It is one who recognizes that they are a sinner, one who recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, one who recognizes that the law 
points to Jesus, that all of the Old Testament sacrifices point to Jesus. But it's worse. They're not just not Jews. They're really a synagogue of Satan. That's like, it's, it's not like good, okay, neutral, then evil. No, it's, it's good, bad. That's kind of what Jesus is himself saying here. This goes to show that the true breakdown of humanity is not between Jew and Gentile. It is not something that is national. It is not something that is genetic. It is not something that is uh, described by national boundaries. It is something that is a matter of the heart. The true distinction in humanity is between Christian and non-Christian, between those in Adam and those in Christ. In fact, in John chapter 8, when Jesus is opposed by the Jewish leaders, he tells them that they are of their father, the devil. In John 8, verse 39, he says that the Jews answered him and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. And then in verse 44, he says, you are your, you of your father, the devil and the desires of your father. That's what you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks it from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus tells him, it's like, if you're not with me, you're against me, <laughs> right? There's, there, there is no middle ground. So if, you, if you're not with me, then you are of your father, the devil, a synagogue of Satan. The point being, if you say you're a Jew and you don't follow your Messiah, Jesus, and Jesus himself says you are of, of Satan, you are of the synagogue of Satan. So now what does Jesus tell the church in verse 10? Well, he says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. So the words of Jesus, the words of the one who is the first and the last, the one who is dead but is now alive, are this, do not fear any of these things. Think about when John got the vision of Christ and he falls down as though dead. What were the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he lays his hand on him? He says, fear not. And here Jesus is telling the church in Smyrna, do not fear any of these things. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, don't worry, I'll protect you from these things you're about to suffer. He says, do not fear any of these things that you are about to suffer. And I think in the long run, that's better. I don't want Jesus to keep me from suffering as much as I want Jesus to preserve me through suffering. I think that's far better. You know, I think of Psalm 23, right? What is, what is that middle verse in Psalm 23, 23, 4? where he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. He doesn't say, okay, you know, Jesus doesn't stand at the entrance of the valley of the shadow of death and say, don't go here, go that way. It's much easier this way. No, he says, here, I will walk you through the valley of the shadow of death. I will be there with you. 
There are many religious fanatics who are willing to die for their cause, but none of them have a leader who was willing to die for them, who went through the same persecution they did. None of these religious fanatics have a leader who will sustain them through their persecutions. Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. The persecution of the church is just the world's way of getting back at Jesus. They can't get Jesus anymore because he's dead. And now he's ascended to the right hand of God the Father. So the only way to get to Jesus is to get to him by persecuting the church. So we get that word there, tested. You will be tested and tried. That I, it's the same word you see in James 2 when he says, consider it pure joy when you face various trials. It's the same word. Now, these trials that we face in life, I've said it before, these trials are sent by God. And the reason why we can count them as pure joy, because these trials serve to perfect us. They serve to encourage us, to strengthen our faith and to pr- produce endurance in us. And they're God's way of sort of weaning us from the things of the world. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in the things of the world, trials are a way of God kind of reorienting your, per, your, your perspective from the things in the world to the things of heaven. And the good news of this is that Jesus is in control of all of our trials. He is in control of the timing. So when trials happen, Jesus is in control of that. The severity, how tough trials are, Jesus is in control of that. The purpose, why I'm going through trials, Jesus is in control of that. The duration, how long trials will last, Jesus is in control of that. And in this case, Jesus says you will have tribulation 10 days. Now again, we need to understand in Revelation, the numbers aren't necessarily to be taken literally. It wasn't like the church in Smyrna would be literally persecuted for 10 calendar, 24-hour days. The idea is that it's a short span of time, a very short, definable span of time that the church will be persecuted. But this doesn't mean that they'll be persecuted for a short period of time and then left alone. More than likely, what he's saying is their persecution is going to end in death. You'll be persecuted a short time and then it's going to end in death. The reason being is that the Romans, unlike us, we put people in jail and they stay in jail for, you know, three, four, five life sentences, you know, and, you know, even if they, they're going and they have the death penalty, they can, you know, appeal, 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 you know, and it just seems like, you know, we've got a lot of people incarcerated and the population in our jails is probably bigger than most cities put together. The Romans were not guilty of that level of lenience. If you were in jail, you were going to be in jail for a short period of time because then you would probably be fed to the lions or maybe you have the privilege of being used as a human torch for Nero's uh, garden parties or whatever. They were not notorious for imprisoning people for long periods of time. If they were in jail, they were going to be uh, executed more than likely. But Jesus' encouragement to them is to be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Stay true to the faith. Don't waver. Persevere. And the one who remains faithful unto death will receive a crown of life. And here's the awesome part about this crown of life is that Jesus is going to be the one that puts it on your head. 
How awesome is that? How amazing is that? Jesus will crown you. So they will be granted a Stephanos. They will be granted a crown. This, this word speaks about sort of like the, the, the victor's wreath that you would get sort of like in an Olympic Games, you know, when, they, when, when a winner wins and they get the medal. They, you know, back in those days, they would get a little, like, wreath of, of whatever. That's the crown here. But it's the one here. Jesus is going to give them the crown. In fact, let's turn to Revelation chapter 7. Again, this is John's vision where he says, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation! belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits in the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and will lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe, every, uh, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what Jesus will do to the one who perseveres, to the one who is faithful unto death. He will usher them into his glorious presence and wipe away every tear from their eyes. So John closes, or Jesus closes the letter like he does all the others in verse 11 where he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And again, note that here the word churches is plural, so it's not just to the church in Smyrna that this, this encouragement comes. This is an encouragement and a warning to all the churches. And the one who can hear with ears of faith, the one who takes heed to the words of the Spirit, to that one who overcomes persecution for the name of Christ, that person, he says, will not be hurt by the second death. There's an old church saying that says, born once, die twice, born twice, die once. I've always found that kind of neat. But the idea here is, in other words, the person who undergoes only one birth, that is natural birth, will die twice. They will die physically, and then they will die eternally at the, at the last judgment. On the other hand, the person who is born twice, naturally, and then also born again by the Spirit, will only die once. They will die physically, but they will live for all eternity. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, the second death is spelled out a little bit later. So let's turn again, please, to Revelation chapter 20. So in Revelation chapter 20, 
I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then I'll skip down and read verses 11 through 15. So this is the, the famous millennial passage. So Revelation 20, Then I sat, or sorry, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after that, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And I'll drop down to verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face uh, the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So the second death is final judgment, eternal damnation, the fate reserved for those who do not believe and reject Jesus and the gospel message. And it says here, or in that passage, that they will be judged by the writings or the things written in the books. And those who do not have their name written in the book of life, those will be the ones who undergo the second death. So you've got books and you've got book. So many books, which are those books contain all the things that we've done. And that's what that's the basis of our judgment. If you remember Romans two, we are judged by our works. So we are judged by our works. We're judged by the things written in the books. But if your name is in the book, then this doesn't matter in a sense, because this has been covered by Christ. If your name is not in the book then this is what you're going to be judged on, what's written in the books. Okay? Now you may ask, how do I get my name written in the book of life? <laughs> That's a darn good question, right? I want my name in the book. Not, I don't want to be judged by the books. I want to be in the book. <laughs> how do I get my name in the book of life? Well, unfortunately, you can't write yourself in the name. You can't put your name in the book of life. You can't pay someone else to put your name in the book of life. You can't slip someone a 20 and say, can you put my name in the book of life? Okay, so being in the book of life is more rare and it's harder to get than Nebraska Cornhusker tickets. Okay, so you, you, you can't bribe someone to get into the book of life. 
In fact, according to Revelation 13.8 and Revelation 17.8, the names in the book of life are written, as it says, from the foundation of the world. Those who are in the book of the life, the book of the Lamb, written in there from before the foundation of the world. And so, okay, well, that doesn't help me. How do I know then if my name is in the book of life? Well, do you believe in Jesus Christ and trust in him alone for your salvation? Do you believe that there is nothing you can do to earn salvation, but only by grace through faith you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to you? Do you repent of your sins and then, uh, before God and then seek the forgiveness that can only be found in Christ? If you can answer yes to those questions, then your name is written in the book of life. Well, that is the letter to the second church, the letter to the church in Smyrna. The lessons contained in this letter are, are just as applicable to us now in 2020 as they were to those Christians living in 95 AD. The church will face persecution, but take heart, Jesus Christ has overcome the world. That's the good news. Our task is to help, with the help of the power of the Spirit, to remain faithful unto death, to be an overcomer, to be a super conqueror. That is our job, through the help of the Spirit. And the good news is that no matter what we face in this world, Christ is with us. That is the good news. Christ is with us. He'll see us through. He walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And when it is all said and done, then he will utter the words that every Christian wants to hear, which are, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, next time, in two weeks, Lord willing, November 15th, same bat time, same bat channel, we will look at the third letter, which is to the church at Pergamos, which is the compromising church, the compromising church.